Jesus is just uh, teaching his disciples how they uh, can become strong disciples for a purpose, and the purpose is so that they can uh, make disciples of other people. And that's the challenge that God uh, has given us as a congregation to figure out uh, how to do that and uh, to turn you into evangelists, turn you into people that are interested in uh, uh, touching people around you that need uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ uh, uh, and uh, bringing them uh, that good news. Uh, The title of uh, last week, rather, if you're with us, uh, we left a group of fearful storm chasers. And I began a a series called Storm Chasers, and we left a a group of fearful storm chasers uh, in uh, a boat with Jesus on a sea that he had calmed. Uh, Even go ahead and show that first slide, if you would. And uh, we asked last week, uh, what are the questions that we ask uh, quite normally when we're in the midst of a storm? And I, and I said that uh, on the lowest level, more often than not, what we will ask when we're in the middle of a storm, and I know that some of you are going through storms right now, uh, but more often than not, what we ask when we're in the middle of the storm is why is this happening to me? I mean, why, God, are you allowing this storm to come into my life? And we all do that from time to time. But I want to tell you, that's the lowest uh, level question to ask when we're in the middle of the storm. We'll move up the ladder just a little bit, and some of, uh, sometimes when we're in the middle of the storm, we'll ask a better question, and that is, what is God trying to teach me in the middle of the storm? And that is a pretty good question, because God always has lessons that he wants us to learn Uh, when we're going through storms, and that's a good question, uh, a better than the why question, what's God trying to teach me? But if you were here last week, you might remember that I said that there's a much more important question to ask when we're in in the middle of a storm. And that is, who is it that God's trying to get me to see? When I'm in the middle of the storm, the question to ask is not why, and it's not necessarily what, but who. Who is it that God is trying to get me to see when he's allowing me to go through a furious storm in my life? Now last week, to bring you up to speed with what we talked about last week, I I gave you two phrases in the end of chapter 4, that experience of Jesus with his disciples in the boat. And I just want to read these two phrases that answer the question. Who is it that God wants us to see in the middle of our storm? In verse 36, we read this, leaving the crowd behind, they took, the disciples took Jesus along with them just as he was in the boat. And this is the first phrase. And there were also other boats with him. I reminded you last week that whenever we're in the storm, there are always people in other boats around us. And while our attention most often is on ourselves, the Lord taught his disciples in this section of Scripture And over the next few weeks, we'll see, he will show them over and over and over again, the people I most want you to see when you're in the middle of the storm is not yourself, your own condition, but rather the people in the boats around you. Okay? You understand that. You have to get that. But number two, there's another phrase that's equally important, perhaps even more important, of the who that we need to see. It's found in verse 41. It says, chapter 4 and verse 41, they were terrified, the disciples were terrified, And they ask each other, who is this Jesus? That even the wind and the waves obey him. 
Now, you know who storm chasers are. Storm chasers are people that don't run from storms, but they go right into the storm to be able to relieve the pressure in other people's lives. And Jesus is going to teach his disciples, us, that our job is to run into the storms of people's lives, kind of like first responders, to touch them with God's peace and God's blessing and bring peace into the chaos of their lives. Now, when we understand who Jesus is, when we really understand who Jesus is, our job is possible. And until we understand really exactly who Jesus is, we aren't really doing anything but just kind of wasting our time trying to build into other people's lives. In this passage of Scripture that we're going to study today, Jesus makes it very clear to his disciples exactly who he is. This morning, the title of the message is Peace for the Tortured. Peace for the Tortured. And we're going to look at Mark chapter uh, 5 and uh, the first 20 verses of Mark chapter 5 as we talk about peace for the tortured. Next slide. There, there you go. And uh, uh, I just want us to uh, pause and pray uh, together this morning. Will you pray with me this morning? Father, I know that there are uh, people living uh, right now in, uh, the, in such fear of uh, the things going on in their lives around them. People right here this morning that are afraid of, of the circumstances of their lives. But Father, this morning, I, I pray that you would take our minds off of the storms in our lives and help us to focus, Lord, on the storms in the lives of people around us. Because, Father, there there is real healing in that. There's real discipleship in that. And there's a movement in our minds and our hearts that come about because we move our minds away from ourselves to the conditions of others around us. But Father, much more importantly than that, I just pray, Lord, that today you would move our minds away from the image that we so often have of who you are to who you actually are as described to us in Holy Scripture. And so, Father, I just pray that you help us to see who today, the who around us that are tortured by the issues going on in their lives. But Father, much more importantly, I I just pray that we would be able to see you in all your awesome glory and majesty and power and might, the Most High God. And that's my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I hope you're ready to study God's Word together today. Have your notes section out to take some notes on what we're going to be talking about today. Uh, and I want to build my whole message this morning uh, around ten words. Ten words uh, that come from this section of Scripture. You might want to write it down. The first word that I want to talk about is the word tortured. Tortured. In the first five verses, we read about a tortured man. It says in verse 1, chapter 5, verse 1, when they went across the lake, to the region of the Gerasenes, that's on the opposite side of the Lake of Galilee from Galilee, uh, uh, from uh, the area of Galilee known as Nazareth. When Jesus got out of the boat, it says, a man with an evil spirit came from the tombs to meet him. As the disciples move in this story, 
And they are really the, the lenses that we get to look into what Jesus is accomplishing in this story. We're not there, but the disciples are, and the disciples are relating to us key details about what's happening in, in this guy's life and in the life of the people, uh, friends of his that he knows. And as we're looking over their shoulders, we see what I'm just calling a tortured man. Now I want to describe him for you by just giving you several words. In verse 2 we read uh, that he is possessed and he's hostile. In verse 2 it says, when Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an evil spirit, he was possessed by a demon, came from the tombs to meet him. The phrase meet him uh, is not like uh, he came up to Jesus with a handshake, good to see you. It's a hostile meeting. It's like two armies meeting on a battlefield and he comes out uh, in conflict against Jesus to do head-on battle with him. Verse 3, we read that the man is alone and uncontrollable. Verse 3 says, the man lived in the tombs and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. Luke chapter 8, verse 27, his rendition of this same story. Luke says, for a long time, he had not worn clothes or lived in a house. In verse 4, we read two other words, that he was bound and he was violent. Verse 4 says, for he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons from his, uh, on his feet, and no one was strong enough to subdue him. The word subdue is to uh, be able to tame or to restrain him. No one could bring him under control. And I think for the man, the worst part of all was not that no one else could, could tame him, but that he couldn't tame himself. He could not control the forces of evil that were just whelming up inside of him. And so he was indeed bound, bound by a deeper binding than any chains, uh, physical chains could bind him in. Uh, Chains that bound his mind and his soul and his spirit, saying to himself, I am a worthless man. Who could possibly care about me? But then verse 5 we read uh, perhaps the culmination of of the description of him, and that is that he was self-destructive. It says in verse 5, night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. One writer writes and talks about this cutter and says that the function of demon possession is always to destroy and to distort the image of God in us. John 10.10 says that the thief, Satan himself, comes only to kill and to destroy and to steal from us. Folks, I want you to understand that anywhere you find Satan working in your life, any temptation whatever struggle you're going through, whatever oppression you might see, I want you to understand that he is doing that with one purpose and one purpose only. He wants to take the image of God in you and to distort it and to destroy it. I don't care what issues of temptation or addiction that you battle with, the reason you do is because Satan wants to take the image of God that is in your life and to destroy it, to wipe it out, and to make it totally non-effective. As I see this tortured man, several questions come to my mind. I wonder, who were his parents? I wonder, did the man have any friends at all? 
I wonder, did anyone cry out to God for him? And I wonder, had his demon possession, uh, 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 being demon possessed, driven every friend and destroyed every relationship that he had ever had? That brings us to us today because I have to ask, who are the tortured among us today? Who are those individuals today among us that are tortured by chains of addiction or are raging with violence against their spouse or against their children or suffer with self-destruction of the demons of worry or depression in their lives? Folks, tortured people fill our churches, right? They fill our village that we live in, right? But oftentimes because we live in a greater fear of what we think someone else would think of us if we were to be honest about what is torturing us, oftentimes we live in tombs as well. Tombs of our own making. Like the tortured man, I believe we oftentimes, in fact I believe most of the time, we keep people at a safe distance from us. And someone says, how are you doing? And really life stinks for us. Say what? Oh, I'm, I'm doing fine. Everything's good. Everything's, we try to put on that face as if all is well. When deep inside we are tortured, living alone in the tombs of our own secret sins or failures or fears. My question is, I look at this tortured man and what Jesus did in his life, I've got to ask the question, when will the madness stop among us? When will we begin to be honest with who we really are and stop faking it and stop pretending and stop saying in our small groups or in our relationships all is well when it's really not? And when will we begin admitting just like this man, tortured, that Satan too is torturing us and we just need Jesus' help as we could meet him coming out of the tombs? First word is the word torture. And that's bad news. Because there are a lot of tortured people around us. But we move from that one word of bad news to the next nine words that are words of good news. The next words that I would give you, uh, verse 2 through 8, are found in in verse 7. And it's these words, Jesus, Son of the Most High God. Now I want you to write that phrase down. Because that is the most significant thing that I can share with you in this entire section uh, session this morning. It says in verse 6, when Jesus saw from a distance, uh, he saw Jesus from a distance, the man ran and fell on, on his knees in front of Jesus. And he shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? Swear to me that you won't torture me. For Jesus had said to the man, Come out of this man, you evil spirit. It said to the spirit, rather. Verse 9, then Jesus asked him, what is your name? My name is Legion. He replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again, do not send them uh, uh, out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding a nearby hillside, and the demons begged Jesus, uh, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them, and he gave them permission, and the evil spirits came out and went into the pigs. And the herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank 
into the lake and were drowned. And those tending the pigs ran off and reported this and the town and the countryside uh, and the people went out to see what had happened to the man. Folks, I want to tell you, because of our fallen nature, I believe that we, just like the storm chasers, the disciples that are relating the story to us, focus most of our attention on the wrong thing in the story. Now, I just got to tell you, this, there are weird stories in the Bible. All right, there, there are weird stories. A donkey talking to a man, that's a weird story, you know, Balaam's donkey. But it is a weird story. And you just got to admit, this is just a strange. Jesus uh, is confronting this demon-possessed man, and the demons say, don't send us in uh, uh, out of the area, don't send us to hell, is uh, uh, one phrase that's used in one of the other uh, sections of Scripture describing uh, this story. Uh, and, uh, but send us into a herd of pigs, and there were 2,000 pigs on the hillside. And Jesus said, okay, and they go in the pigs, and the pigs run down the hillside, and they all drown. Now, I've got to ask you the question, honestly, really honestly. When I just read that section of the story to you, what stands out to you in the story? Out loud now, we've read uh, now uh, the first uh, thir- 14 verses of this story. What are the things that honestly that grab your attention fastest in the story? Somebody raise your hand and say, what, what stands out to you in the story? Uh-huh. The pigs. The, the value of the pigs. I was thinking about the value of the pigs. This is no small group of pigs, you know. I've never seen a herd of 2,000 pigs. That's a lot of pigs, all right? And uh, I, I was just thinking to myself, man, how many were they? Now, uh, this was a Gentile area. It wasn't a Jewish area, so it was cool to raise pigs, all right? And, uh, but somebody lost a lot of money, that, you know, and why? Anything else stand out to you in the story? Uh, yes, sir. Yeah, 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 yeah. The, the, the demons you're talking about didn't want Jesus to send them out of the area, actually send them to the abyss is what uh, another passage says, uh, but they want them to send them into the pigs uh, and the pigs would, dr- would drown, okay? Yeah, 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 the pigs killed themselves. What, how weird is that? Anyone else, what stands out in the question? Which begs a cute, huge question. Why did Jesus allow that to happen? Yes, Peggy. What happened to the demon? What happened to the demon? Great question. Great question. All of those are important questions to ask. But I want to tell you something that just like disciples, we are focusing, I think, on the wrong issue. Because the issue is really not the pigs. The key issue in the story is not why did they die, and the key issue of the story isn't even what happened to the demons, although those are all very, very important kinds of questions. It's not even the tortured guy. Folks, I want you to understand, to be able to understand this story, you must grasp the importance of one phrase that's on the board in verse 7. Listen to what the demons say in verse 7. And the demons shouted out at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, 
son of the most high God. Next slide. Most high God is a critical name of God in the Old Testament. I just want you to write down. The Hebrew word is uh, Elyon, E-L-Y-O-N. That's the key word. It's used multiple places uh, in the Old Testament and even in the New Testament. I've given you just three of them there. Uh, In Genesis chapter 14, Abraham said, I have raised my hand to the Lord God Most High, creator of heaven and earth. First time that phrase is used in the Bible. 2 Samuel chapter 22 verse 13 and 14 says, Out of his brightness, uh, the brightness of his presence, bolts of lightning blaze. The voice of the Most High thunders from heaven. Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 8. This is fascinating. Explaining why you live where you live. About your nationality. Uh, All of that is based on this idea. It says, The Most High gave the nations their inheritance when He divided up all mankind and set up boundaries for the peoples. We read in the, in the Old Testament, in the book of Daniel, uh, perhaps in the book of Daniel more than any other place, the, the, the name for God, uh, the Most High God is used. Because Daniel had proclaimed that name, the Lord Most High, or God Most High, Elyon, multiple times, he had done it over and over and over again. Do you remember in the story when Nebuchadnezzar throws Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into the furnace? You remember that? And the next morning, after he had not slept a week, and he comes in chapter 3, and he calls out to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Do you remember what he says? He says, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, has the Lord God Most High saved you? Do you understand? A pagan king understood who God is. There are at least three times in the New Testament, in the New Testament, when demons acknowledge who God is using that phrase, the Lord God Most High. Let's look at them very, very quickly this morning. In the book of Mark, go back to Mark, uh, and uh, you're in Mark, and Mark chapter 1. You might want to leave a bookmarker here in chapter 5. We'll come back in uh, just a moment. But in Mark chapter 1, we read another story of, of a demon-possessed man coming to Jesus. In verse 23 of chapter 1, very beginning of Jesus' ministry, it says, Just then, a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an evil spirit, a demon, cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Another translation, the God Most High. Interesting, fascinating story. In the book of Acts chapter 16, here we see a a demon harassing the gospel message being preached. And uh, uh, it's kind of uh, a fascinating thing. Paul and Silas are... Uh, just about ready to be thrown into prisons, hadn't happened yet. Uh, but I want you to notice the setup uh, for being thrown uh, in, uh, into jail in Philippi. In Acts chapter 16, verse 16, and uh, uh, down to verse 18. Do not let Satan take your mind away from what we're talking about here. He does not want you to get this or grasp this concept. Verse 16, it says, Once when we were going to a place of prayer, we, met, uh, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit by which she predicted the future, an evil spirit. 
And she had earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune telling. And this girl followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God. And they're telling you the way to be saved. Isn't that fascinating? A demon demon was the evangelist saying, This is how you can be saved. She kept saying this for many days, and finally Paul uh, became troubled, uh, so troubled that he turned around and said to the Spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. And at that moment, the Spirit left her. Forty years ago, J.B. Phillips wrote a a book that was one of those classic books. It was called, uh, Your God is Too Small. Forty years ago, a whole generation of of Christians were just enamored by what Phillips had to say, but we haven't changed a bit in our focus of who God is in our mind. As a matter of fact, we have reversed the order of what Scripture says God really is, and we've placed ourselves on the throne instead of God. Understand me here. Listen very, very well. Folks, in God's authority and in His dichotomy, God is the most high. He's high and exalted. He doesn't owe us an explanation about anything. He doesn't owe us anything. God is on high. He is ruler, creator, sustainer of the world and all that we know and the universe and he's never had a beginning and he will never have an end. He is God most high. And we are not. But you know what we have done, and especially in the modern American church, you know what we have done? We have shifted the roles. And now we are here. My wants, my needs, my desires, what I want God to do for me, and God is down here somewhere simply as an answer boy for us to give us what we want, to explain to us what He's doing, to give us the blessings that we desire or the help that we want when we want it. And essentially, we have taken the God Most High and ripped Him off the throne and said, you're a little more to me than answer boy to me, a waiter at my table to give me what I want now. My question to me uh, for you is why have we done that? And this is no small answer. This is massive and goes to the core of why you do everything you do in hostility and rejection against God. Would you keep a bookmarker there and, and uh, mark, you're already there, and I want you to find one Old Testament passage of Scripture in the book of Isaiah, chapter 14. There are two times in the Old Testament that describe the fall of Satan. One's in the book of Ezekiel, the other's in the book of Isaiah, chapter 14, and I want you to read very, very carefully the words that are found there, and this will explain to you why you shift God from the place that He is to the place you want him to be in your life. In Isaiah chapter 14, verse 12, it says, it's talking about Satan. It says, you, Satan, have fallen from heaven, 
Oh, morning star, dawn, uh, son of the dawn. We don't even have time to talk about uh, how that Satan was one of the archangels and he was blessed and he was with God uh, and he was a servant of God. Uh, But this explains his rejection of that position. He says, you've been cast down to the earth and you who once laid low the nation, who uh, once laid low the nations. You said in your heart, I will ascend to the throne. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of the assembly, on the utmost heights of the sacred mountain. I will ascend to the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Folks, you understand the depth of that concept? The reason why you take God off of his throne, the most high God, and make him a God that you can handle and demand answers from and demand his blessing from and expect him to do it. And if he doesn't do it, get mad at God and say, where are you? Why are you letting this happen to me? Explain to me what you're doing to me in this. Do you understand why you do that? Because that's exactly what Satan did. Satan says, I will become just like the God Most High. Folks, I want you to understand that Satan is winning the war in our world today. Someone said the church is no longer the home team in our society. We no longer have the influence in our society. Just a generation ago we did. The church is losing the war and we're no longer the home team. And you know why? The reason is that the Most High God is no longer the Most High God in the church and among the people of God. And because of that, we have lost any hope of influence on our world. I said this was about good news. And it sounds really bad, but the truth is this is all about good news because there is a solution. There is a solution. Even would you go to the next slide, it's Old Testament slide, 2 Chronicles chapter 7 and verse 14. It says there, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways Then will I hear from heaven, and I will forgive their sin, and I will heal their land. Folks, repentance. Repentance. I'm not talking about repentance about all those sinners out there. I'm talking about repentance in the church. That's what he's calling people to. If my people, if they will do this, Folks, if there was ever a day for the church to repent of our self-centeredness and our desire for God to do everything for us and for us to set God in our minds and in our spirits and in our hearts on the throne where He is, today's the day. 
Let me give you two reasons why we need to do this. And then we're going to close out. Uh, and I hope what will be a powerful closing for this service this morning for you. Reason number one, go back with me if you would to Mark chapter 5. Reason number one, we need to put God on his throne as the most high God because we desperately need healing. We desperately need healing. I, I don't know what you came in with this morning, but I, I want to tell you something. If, you're, if you were honest today, and I know it's impossible for you to do. Why? Because the truth of the matter is this is what we do. Uh, we put ourselves up here, we put God way down here, and we put the feelings of other people above God. You see, the Bible says the beginning of wisdom is the fear of God, but we fear what other people think about us more than we fear God. That's why we're not honest. That's not why we wouldn't share what we are really like inside with other people, because they might think bad of me. We are more fearful of the attitudes of people around us, even people in church today, than we are fearful of the God most high. But we can receive healing because it says back in our story in verse 14, uh, and 15, it says, those tending the pigs ran off and reported what had happened uh, in the town and in the countryside. And the people went out to see what had happened. Watch this. This is the good news at work. This is the gospel at work in a person's life. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed with the leaf sitting there, dressed, and in his right mind. And they were all terrified. Healing. Soundness. Wholeness. I read a statement about a month and a half ago that has just been driving my mind crazy. The author was writing, uh, Larry Crabbs, the author, and he was relating how he had been t uh, teaching in a uh, a, a large pastor's conference and uh, there were pastors from large churches, uh, churches all over the country and he didn't identify the pastor but uh, he, he said he was of uh, uh, one of the mega churches that just about everybody would know his name if I shared his name and the statement that the pastor gave after a talk talking about what I have just talked with you about, about being honest and open and, and, and hiding in our, in our tombs. His pastor walked up and he said just simply the words, I wish I could feel whole for just 10 minutes. Does that resonate with anyone here today? I wish for just 10 minutes I could be whole and understand the abundant life that Jesus gives. Reason number one why we must repent of sin and place God back on his throne as the Lord God most high and Jesus as his son is because we all need healing in our lives. Can I get an amen out of that? We need healing. And we'll never get it until we've placed him there. But that brings us to the second reason in the last two words. And with these, I want to draw us to a close with some specific application this morning. And those are the last two words, go home. Go home.
verse 18 through 20 relates this. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with Jesus, and Jesus did not let him go, but he said, and it's actually, it's a command. Uh, that's why I put an exclamation point there. He just didn't suggest. He commanded him. He said, instead, go home to your family and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. Verse 20. So the man went away and began to tell in the ten cities or the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And all the people were amazed with what he said. I believe the guy's reaction is our reaction when we meet Jesus and his mercy. We just want to follow Jesus. We want to stay with Jesus. We want to learn more. We want to receive more from him. But the danger in doing that and our desire to be with Jesus is that we forget the people in the other boats around us. Remember chapter 4 verse 36. There's always other boats around. And here it is that Jesus sends out his very first missionary. Wasn't the apostles, wasn't the disciples, it was a former lunatic whose life had been changed, tortured man, demon-possessed man, who went back home, the very first foreign missionary. The Decapolis, east of the Jordan uh, River, east of, uh, of Galilee, uh, included ten cities uh, including the Gerasenes, that was one of the cities. But the two cities that are familiar to us by name today, although the name has changed, one of them is Amman, Jordan. You've heard of that before, right? You've heard of the city of Amman, Jordan. The other is the city of Damascus, Syria. Did you get that? Jesus sends his first foreign missionary. And he proclaims the good news of Jesus all over everywhere. Now, I've got to ask the question, why didn't Jesus just let the guy go with him? Why did he send him back home? The answer is in verse 15. I've already closed my Bible, but you can read it. The reason was the guy had been changed. He had once been tortured. Now he's sane. He's dressed. He is changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of the Most High God. And so Jesus sent him back home because he knew dozens and dozens and dozens of other tortured people who needed to hear the gospel too. And I close with this. So do you. People on your street, people in your neighborhood, people that you work with, people in your families, people that serve you in restaurants or at Ucrops or, or, or Martins or or uh, wherever you might happen to shop. Tortured people. Living in tombs to pretending everything is okay. While deep inside, they know that it's not. That brings us this morning to how I want to close out our service, and that is the commissioning of two different sets of storm chasers, uh, of missionaries, of people that are going to be going out to, uh, to share the gospel of Jesus Christ, uh, that this story calls them to do that. And the first is our Haiti team. And uh, next Sunday, Sunday morning, is that right, Arthur? Next Sunday morning, we're going to have a group of eight, a group of eight uh, headed to uh, uh, Northwest Haiti Christian Mission. And uh, what I want to do right now is just uh, for those that are here in the first service, 
uh, uh, just to come forward right now. Uh, uh, we got a, a couple of our elders here. We just want to pray over you and anoint you with oil. So those team members, would y'all come to the floor out uh, the front? And uh, Noah and Paul, would you come? Aaron as well, would you help us? By? And uh, uh, what we want to do is this. And y'all just stand right here. And uh, you might say to yourself, anointing with oil, that's just weird. Well, I didn't invent this, God did, okay? And this is what Scripture says, uh, oil always represents the presence of the Holy Spirit, all right? Always represents the presence of the Holy Spirit. And we see it happening over and over and over again uh, in, in, uh, in Scripture where people would be anointed for various different purposes, but always the concept was be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, does, are these people already filled with the Holy Spirit? Absolutely. Uh, when they accepted Jesus Christ as Savior of their life, absolutely. I didn't invent this, but apparently in some spiritual way, the presence of the Holy Spirit comes on these folks right now with a fresh new anointing of the Holy Spirit. Paul, know if you would come and uh, just uh, lay hands on uh, these team members with me, and I'll lead us in prayer this morning. Father, Haiti uh, is a place uh, that's a hotbed of uh, the kingdom of evil. And uh, what we have hidden in the darkness and in the shadows, the forces of the evil one are just so prevalent there. Father, they will come face to face with the power of the evil one in uh, the ministry that they'll be doing in Northwest Haiti. Father, I thank you for Caitlin who serves there and protection that you give her. And Father, I thank you for the spiritual struggles and battles that she does every single day for the cause of the king. And Father, as this group of eight come alongside her, uh, uh, I just pray, Lord, that in their ministry with her, Father, that they would experience the anointing of the Most High God, the work of your Son, Jesus Christ, through their hands and their lips. And Father, I just pray that you would... Uh, Give them words to say. Give them silence when it's appropriate. But give them always a Christ-like attitude in the work that they do. Thank you, Father, for them. Thank you, Father, for our chance to commission them this morning as our next group of short-term missionaries. In Jesus Christ's name I pray. Communion is a time when we focus on what Jesus has